Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 236. Special Yudalit Kislev 90th anniversary edition. Being that this coming Thursday, the 14th of Kislev, is the 90th year anniversary from the marriage and wedding of the Rebbe and the Rebetzin in Warsaw in 1928, Tafresh Pei So this, consider this a special program dedicated to that. We will talk about that, but I want to go in order of the date since today is Yud Kislev, the 10th of Kislev, we'll begin with that. This program is dedicated by Philip Namaworth in honor of the birthday of Leah Teferet, Bat Vega, and Faival Leib on Kislev the 13th, and the Yartzeit of Sura Risha Bat Leah on the 19th of Cheshvan. So, as I said, since today was Yud Kislev, the 10th of Kislev, 10th of Kislev is the Chag HaGeula in the year Tov Kuv Pei Zayin, was the year when the Mitla Rebbe was arrested and released from prison. But sadly, because the next year, which would be the, marking the first year of that redemption, was the day after his Histalkus, as we discussed last week, Tes Kislev, yesterday, this Shabbos, was the ninth of Kislev, which is both the birthday and the yard site in Histalkus of the Mitla Rebbe. So since his redemption was literally that year, so the next year was a day after the passing, after the Histalkus, so you can imagine the celebration was somewhat muted. But it didn't take away from the power and impact of the celebration. The celebration, which can be compared to Yutas Kislev, the Alter Rebbe in prison, and coming out Yutas Kislev will, of course, be coming in ten days, in nine days, so Yud Kislev has its own unique Chagagul, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, and I'm referring now to the Sicha I mentioned last week as well, by Yetzeh, Yud Alef Kislev, Tovshin Mem Zayin, the Rebbe cites there that in some places it says that the Kitruk, the Kitruk means the so-called Rebbe is arrested, it's not just because of physical and material reasons down below, that something in heaven, there's some challenge on that Rebbe's approach. So Yudas Kislev had its kitrug, which we'll talk about when that time comes. And Yud Kislev, the kitrug was not on chsidis, on the spreading of chsidis, that the Altarev was spreading in Yudas Kislev, but it was on the spreading of, the, of his on, a kitrug, on a challenge on the concept of Rebbe and Chosid. That's what it says in Beis Rebbe and some other places. Now the Altarev was also a Rebbe. So you have to say that something about the Mitle Rebbe, and we know that the Altarev appointed the Mitle Rebbe to be a madrich, even in the Alter Rebbe's lifetime, to be a madrich, a mentor, and a, and a guide to the, the chassidim. Uh, so you could say, perhaps, that the development of Rebbe and chassid in a more intense way was stronger by the Mitla Rebbe. I haven't seen that, but saying that the arrest was about Rebbe and chassid, you could say that, or you could say, no, the Rebbe and part is equal in all Rebbe's. But that happened to be, the arrest of the Mitla Rebbe was because of the different concerns that the government had was in the relationship of the Rebbe and the Chassidim. As opposed to with the Alta Rebbe was the Messiah that he was helping Eretz Yisrael, which they considered an enemy of Ottoman Empire, an enemy of the Russian, of Russia. And that ultimately was really a challenge on the spreading of Chassidim itself. But additionally, the Rebbe explains in that talk, in that Sikha, that if the Gu'ul of the Alta Rebbe, which was essentially a vindication that spreading of chassidus, that he began to spread chassidus in ways that were unprecedented, is not just appropriate, but he should even do it more so 
as he heard from the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad Al-Tarebbe did. And then afterwards came another arrest and another liberation. So you have to say the second liberation was in a dimension that was not covered, so to speak, by the Al-Tarebbe's liberation. And that is the spreading of Chassidus with Bina, not just Chochmah, but Bina, the Mitla Rebbe. I mean, you see it even, even physically, you see when you learn his discourses, you see he takes this to take the idea, the kernel of an idea, the spark of Chochmah, which is the Alter Rebbe, and develops it and fleshes it out, where one page of the Alter Rebbe could be ten pages or more by the Mitla Rebbe. So clearly, it's another dimension. It's not just a matter of length in Kamus, quantity, it's also quality, developing it in a way that can be understood in a more powerful way, because when you develop something and flesh it out, it becomes more palatable, and, e- and more relatable. So clearly that was also a challenge because any time you have a divine revelation, especially Chassidus, which has the power to change the world and the power to bring Mashiach, so there is always the forces against that, so to speak, resist or put up a resistance. And you need to break through. So that's, and thank God in each case there was a Geula that followed the, the momentary and uh, temporary concealment. And that ghoul is a vindication, as I said, a, that we have a license now to spread chassidus in the, even a broader way than at the time of the Alter Rebbe. And we see, the Rebbe says, that the Mitla Rebbe spread chassidus a lot more than the Alter Rebbe did. Now, obviously, it's not a competition. It means the next step, Alter Rebbe developed chassidus Chabad and taught it, but the Mitla Rebbe printed many svarim and the hafotza of chassidus, you see beginning even stronger and greater, and both in quantity and quality, by the middle of the Rebbe and the spreading of it. And obviously, that has only grown till this day with each generation. And Deir Ashvi, as the Rebbe puts it, So the Gula represents basically broad opening of the channels, the expanses of the rivers, not just the Maya, not just the spring of water and, and short points. And even after the Alta Rebbe went out of prison, he, his, his, his discourses were longer, but really opening up the floodgates, if you wish, what, that, which is Bina, the floodgates of Chassidus in a way that really without any limits. That is what this day represents, that redemption, which of course is relevant to all of us, that there's really no limitations at all. Now you can say it all began with Yutas Kisl, which is the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Yet Yud Kislev adds a dimension to it. Some places it says actually that Yud Kislev is the birthday of the of a chassid, and Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, the, and I'm sorry, there's the birthday of a chassid, and Yud Kislev is the is the bris of a chassid because it's eight days afterwards, which also indicates even though Yud Kislev came after Yud Kislev, so you see from that that Yud Kislev has its unique, particular dimension to the point of birth, the birth of a chassid. And the bris, of course, as the Alter Rebbe says in Shulchan Aruch, is when another stage of the divine soul enters into us in a more manifest way. However you explain it, the bottom line is in practical terms and applied chassidus terms, is that Yud Kislev offers us the capacity to really open up the floodgates in every possible way and flood the world. As it says, and fill the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, Chachma alone is, is the Nekudah, is the point. To fill the world in all expanses of it, you, that requires the rivers that go all the way to the, far, the farthest banks and reach the farthest and remote areas, both geographically and also spiritually, 
with the ideas of Chassidus and making it relevant to our life, our lives, and the challenges and issues we address. So, of course, fitting to a program like this to, to pay tribute and acknowledge it and commemorate it on this special day. We also have this week is Pasha Vayishlach. Pasha Vayishlach. Here again, the Rebbe explains the connection. Vayishlach, following last week's Pasha Vayetzei, Yaakov leaving Be'er Sheva, Israel, going to Charon. Now Yaakov's coming back, and he's about to encounter his brother, Esav. Vayishlach, Yaakov Malachim. Yaakov sends Malachim to interpretations, whether actual angels or sluchim, messengers, to find out what's going on, where Esav stands. And Chassidus explains that, of course, this contains the concept of shlichus, vayishlach, to send, that each of us has to send out messengers to reach even places that where Esav is. Esav represents the material world. Yishmolcham, he was a warrior, and he knew the, the master, the art of hunting. What does that represent? That represents the gufa nefesh abamis, the, anim- the body and animal soul that have to that have to tame the elements and in some way tame this world and have to deal in an aggressive way with the challenges of life. So Esav is also a twin brother of Yaakov and therefore both are necessary. But Esav represents the mundane world and dealing with the mundane world. So one could argue, you know what, I want to stay Ishtam Yeshavahalim, I want to stay simple and innocent within the tents of Torah and prayer. He says, no, you have to re- we have to face your brother Esau, you have to face the world, the hunter, the warrior, and you have to find ways to persuade and influence and inspire him too to embrace on his terms what the mission that God sends us. And that's Vayishlach, not just Vayishlach, but to go into that world. So of course, if you talk about the Futsa Maynasecha Chutza, so Maynasecha Mayon actually is Chach, Mayon, the wellsprings of Chassidus. And your futzah means to distribute. But to where do you distribute? You could say your futzah manasecha, and I wouldn't say the word chutzah. So we say no chutzah. The chutzah means the outskirts, to the outer recesses. As the Rebbe adds, chutzah she'en chutzah mimeh. Not just outer relative to the inner, which can be midas compared to wisdom intelligence. Midas compared to mechim. The emotions compared to the cognitive faculties. Or it could be chutzah just outside of your Dalaramas, your little circle. Chutzah could be your city. When you say chutzah in the fullest the definition of the meaning, it means to the farthest outskirts, which is even to the Esau. And as the Rebbe brings in various different sikhs, that chsidim, uh, that the, the Razad, which is the brother of the Rebbe Rashab, and of course this only accelerated afterwards, translated parts of chsidim even for non-Jews to study. The Friedrich Rebbe, B'shivim Loshan, B'ayir Hetev, Reshchei Deshvat, began to translate it to many languages, Chassidus. And of course, in the Rebbe's time, our generation, it took on, took on a whole new dimension that Chassidus can be explained to every human being. The principles of godliness, the principles of divine unity, the principles of living up to the divine code, the Sheva Mitzvah Bneach, but infused with the spirituality and with the purpose for which we all were created to make this world a a civilized place and prepare it for the Gaul and for Mashiach. So if you talk about Yishlach Yaakov Melochim to Esau, your Futsuman is essentially the same content. And you do it not just with spreading 
Torah itself and mitzvahs and tzedek and yesh, justice and virtue and social justice and compassion and so on, but also infused with the soul. Because if you really want to permeate Esau, you cannot just do, just follow the laws and the rules. That's action. But you also want to transform the personality and the mindset and the methodology. And that it should be, as the Rambam says, that the business of the world will be nothing but to, to know godliness in all our ways and everything. As Rashi says in this week's chapter, so when Yaakov finally reconciles with Esau, with all the, and his fears are not realized that there have to be war. It was enough to pray and to appease him. So Yaakov says to Yaakov, let's now go together and join and live by side by side. Come live in Eden. And, and Yaakov answers that it's not only Iti, I will go slowly. The children are young, the sheep are tender. So Rashi says what he, he knew he was not going. So what is he just lying to him? Rashi says, no, Yaakov is referring to the end of days. The, the, the prophecy of Avadje, who himself was a Ger that came from the Bnei Esau, from Edom. So Avadje prophesizes how there will ultimately be at the end, there will be the final reconciliation, the final birur, what we call birur ha'umis, refinement of the nations, refinement of the materialism of this world, that the entire world will be busy with knowing God including Esau and his descendants. So what we see here is this Pasha really captures the essence of what Chassidus came to do. Prepare the world toward the Gula, as Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, that when will I come? When he asked him, when will you come? He answered, when your wellsprings will spread outward. What's the connection? Because the wellsprings are the teachings and the guidelines and the directives that help prepare the chutzah, the outer outskirts, the world, for Mashiach and Gula. A world which will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. A world which will be busy not with materialism as an end in itself, but as a means toward divine consciousness. And therefore, by doing this, it's not just as Gula. You learn Chassidus and you express Chassidus, but actually by learning it, you prepare yourself. You develop an appetite and you develop a refinement that makes you a keli, a container, to be able to contain what Mashiach is all about. It's a cause and effect. When people live Gu'uladik through learning Chassidus and acting on it, then that itself brings the Gu'ulah, Siba Masuv, cause and effect. So all this is captured in Yud Kislev. Of course, Yud Kislev has many lessons as well, and even more so, being that it's the first Gu'ulah of the Alter Rebbe, and we'll talk about there and there also the emphasis is on that it reached even the Goyim, even the Sari Amalucha, the ministers, all talked about Hifli Vihigdil, how God did wonders. And we'll talk about that as we get closer to Yutas Kislev. Good. With that, let us segue to the seventh generation. From the Mitla Rebbe to the seventh generation, as I said in the year Tafresh Peites, in Warsaw and Varsha, the Rebbe and the Rebbe were married on Yudal Kislev, which this Thursday will be the 90th anniversary. We know that Rebbe emphasized all anniversaries are significant, but especially a round number that ends a, a cycle of 10, in this case 9, 10, 90, has special significance because in Chassidus and Kabbalah, 10 is the end of a cycle. 10. So 90 years is a significant period. And <clears throat> what is its lesson for us? You could say it's anniversary, fine, we remember that Rebbe and the Rebbe got married, 
It's a good personal event. What does it have to do with us? So we all know what the Rebbe said in Tavshin Yudalit. Tavshin Yudalit was 25 years from the wedding. That's when the Rebbe Chazid the Maimel Chodedi and later edited, which is the Maimel, one of the Maimorim that the Friedrich Rebbe said at the Maimel, at the wedding, among other Maimorim, during that period in time. So from Tafresh Peites to Tafshin Yudalit, it's Tzadik Tess, Tafshin Tess, it's 25 years. And there, then the Rebbe said, this is the talk, this is the day that bound me to you and you to me. And together we will exhaust, when Eismat in the Golas, we will exhaust the Golas, and the Ebeshter should help that we shall see fruit from our labor, from our efforts. Translated loosely from the Yiddish. Why is it the day that binds me to you and you to me? Because, Pasha, technically, the Rebbe, marrying the Rebbetson, essentially turned him into the son-in-law of the Friedrich Rebbe, which basically prepared him and the ground that he would be the next Rebbe. Of course, the Ebershter has his mysterious ways and could do anything any way he likes. But with that in the natural way, that's what it did. So the marriage of the Rebbe and the Rebbetson, the Rebbe's own words, not just our own conclusion, is a day that binds the Rebbe to us and, the, and, and us to the Rebbe. And then he continues and says that together we will exhaust the Golas, which is an interesting expression. Usually the Golas, the Matar Tunzes, the Golas, the Tirches HaGolas, the Golas exhausts us. The Tzad HaGolas, the pains, the oppression, the, all that we went through during Golas. And here is Ace Matar the Golas, which is really hard to fully translate. Someone said to me, exhausting the Golas sounds good, it's a good expression. It means wear it down, really. It's like Mama's transforming it. Instead of it wearing us down, let us wear it down. And bring the gula, obviously. And then the Rebbe concludes, that, and we should be, God should help that we should see fruits. Pri. Abapashas, why pri? Because what is a chasana? Leads to pruruvu, umilu sa'aretz, molo sa'aretz, v'kivshua. So even though the Rebbe and the Rebbe were not blessed with physical children, but as the Rebbe once said, all the children are ours. And the Rebbe acted that way. The second year after Tavshin Yud Beis came Erev Yom Kippur. So the Rebbe would always give a bracha to Klal Yisrael, to people who would come in. There were several groups that came in. The Rebbe would bless them after Mincha Erev Yom Kippur, the day before Yom Kippur, as is the custom. But then, the second year... Which would be the equivalent of 1951, because it's still not the change of the, of the, the secular year. <clears throat> the Rebbe told the secretary, since the meaning is to bless children before Kondidre, so the children, the children are considered the students, I'm sorry, are the students. Anyone who teaches their own Torah. Is considered like give give birth till there's a posik in Bamidba, right? In the beginning it says on Bnei and Allah's of summer, children of Adam, that they're Bnei Mesha made Adam and Mesha. But how they Bnei Mesha they're not the children of Mesha, because Mesha taught them Taylor. So the Rebbe said, send in the Talmudim and give them a bracha before Khanid. And from then on, this became one of the most sacred moments in Bachram's life, maybe the most sacred. Because the Rebbe himself did something, instituted something that the other Rabbeim did not do. They gave brachas to Bachim at different times, but to do Erevim Kippur. Now, the pastors, because they had their own biological children, that doesn't take away from all the students being their children, but however you analyze it here, it was clearly very overt 
And the Rebbe is saying that, that this is giving a bracha to his children. And he did, he did it with a whole Yivarech. Each year, the emotions, and I, I, I attended, I participated in several of them later years. In my years, it was hard to describe that connection, especially knowing the Rebbe looking at his children and blessing them for the year. So, so Yudalat Kislev is the birth, is the marriage that gives birth to all the children, the connection we all have to the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin. So Priyamolam is very, very fitting. Paytas, my Paytas, mitzvahs. But also it says Paytas, Elotel, essential to tell this of Tzadikim, I mentioned, is their students, their children. I'll also mention a story that I heard and I confirmed it before I put it into the book Toward a Meaningful Life. There was a woman who was a friend, one of the friends that came to the Rebetzin. So one Yudalat Kislev on the anniversary, she visited the Rebetzin to give her mazel tov. The Rebetzin showed her around the house and there, there were different bouquets of flowers from different people who sent them. And the Rebetzin showed her this bouquet, that bouquet. Uh, this woman, Rebetzin Kohn was her name, saw in the kitchen, from a distance she saw a really elaborate, ornate uh, bouquet. But the Rebetzin didn't uh, guide her there. So she, uh, curiosity or whatever, she said to the Rebetzin, what about that? The Rebetzin, as the man she was and the, grace, the graciousness that she had, so she walked with her to the kitchen. As they got closer, she realized they're not flowers, but fruits, dried fruits in the shape of flowers. And the Rebetzin said, in her inimitable way, this is from man. This is from my husband, as she referred to the Rebbe. <clears throat> Interesting, fruits. So right away when I heard the story, fruits, fruits. We should see fruits from our labor, from our work. Not getting into what lessons we learned from this, whether the Rebbe didn't want to send flowers which end up wilting, where fruits can be used, can be eaten, and so on. But regardless, it was fruits, which is so much more apropos and fitting to a marriage that it produces fruits. Flowers are beautiful, and they have a beautiful fragrance, and they have a beautiful look. But fruits are perpetual, forever. And, uh, and fruits create a pri, a pri, a fruit creates another fruit. So the lesson, my friends, is very straightforward to myself and to all of us. You Yudalat Kislev, every year, it's Bechein, it's lesson to us, directive, is that we have to live up to being these fruits that truly give nachas and pleasure to the one that created these fruits. And we have to be a peri, fruits that create other fruits. We have to perpetuate the lessons and the message and the legacy and everything we learned and the directives and the, and the actions that we were guided by. And the way that's a fruit which is, sweet, which is pleasant, tr- uh, delicious, and has an impact on people forever and ever and ever. That's our job, is to create fruits. That's the Yudalat Kislev message. Especially when it comes 90th year. So then it takes on a whole new dimension. A whole new dimension in the perpetuation of the fruit with all the meanings in tzaddik, from the word tzaddik, as in the Rebbe of turn 90, spoke a lot like about the word tzaddik. Tzaddik is the letter tzaddik, is the number 90. And all the other interpretations in 90. So they all come together and intensify our activities in living as fruit should live, that when someone looks at you, they see, ah, this is the fruit of a tr- beautiful tree. And who's the tree? The Rebbe and the Rebbetzin. 
and a fruit that continues to have a ripple effect. Shliach isha shliach. Tefeach amnaslah Not just that you do it, but you also influence that others become fruit by continuing and perpetuating and teaching these teachings to the point that it affects others, that they too live up to be such fruit. And when we do that in an effective way, this can have a viral impact to the point that it can literally transform thousands and tens of thousands and millions of lives. I want to add one more thing. Recently, it's always good to add something new. Recently, it was discovered in the archives of Rabdovid Raskin, who headed Tzach from the time of its inception back in the, early, in the, in the Yudz. So he wrote to the Rebbe, the year was Tov Shalom 50th anniversary. In the 50th anniversary of the Rebbe, of, of Yudal Kislev, he wrote that there was, he described that duch to the Rebbe, what the, the, the Fabreng that Tzach organized in 770. And, and he spoke about, there was um, the different people that spoke, they learned the Maimed from Tavshin Yudalad. Then they asked Rabbi Mentlik, all of Hashem, um, to, to, who was at the wedding, he attended the wedding of the Rebbe and the Rebbetson, to tell about his memories, what he remembered, and the effect, the great effect it had. Then he said there was a Fabrengen of the different Mashpim. He says, and Baruch Hashem, it was organized, we said L'chaim and saying Nugunim. The Rebbe's response. Lepela, Lepela, Shadafke Meragdin, Shahuske Befeder, Shukamapom, Benigeya, and the Rebbe circles the Chasana, Lay Niskerkan. It's a wonder that, that, that specifically, Meragdin, the dancing, that was mentioned explicitly and many times in relation to the wedding. You tell me that the person who was at the wedding spoke about the wedding. So wedding directly connected to dancing, that's not mentioned here. Interesting. Now you look, think about from halachically, Ketzad Meragdim Lefnei Akala, it's a mitzvah to dance before Chosun and Kala, especially the Kala. Rikud. Singing, they sing by weddings. You say, L'chaim. But Meragdim is missing here. A lot can be learned from it, that, you know, Chassidus talks about Negunim, you sing with your voice. It definitely makes a person happy. But Merikud, like it speaks in the Maimonim about Simchas Teira, Merikud is your whole body. Your legs are dancing and they lift up everything, even your head. And when you're dancing, everything gets lifted, your legs are lifting, so the joy permeates the entire person. That all of you, the whole person is consumed with this joy. I don't want to speculate and go on a limb in saying interpretations, but I just want to share one thought that perhaps is connected to Pri Amole. You can live up to be a fruit and to be a product and to be a beautiful fruit produced by the Rebbe and the Rebbetson of Yudalat Kislev, but not necessarily you see it permeating the entire person. When a person dances and doesn't just sing and say, L'chaim, it permeates all of us, and not just permeates, it lifts everything up, it lifts you up, and you lift everyone around you up. So yes, this is a complete yeshlema b'dara chavshet. But if someone has other interpretations, I'm sure it was not just a technical thing to dance. It had deeper meaning as well. Besides the meragdim, what meragdim means. And the different, even the maimorim of Basilegani talk about the rikud of the different tanoim, amaroim, how they danced. And uh, that was with the, the, the shtusi, when they danced with the different meanings in shtus, the gdush. They danced in ways that were completely unlimited, 
unbridled joy and celebration. So I'm sure this Yudal Kisil is going to be a lot of dancing to fulfill all the lack of dancing to the previous years, even back then, 40 years ago, when this uh, answer came out in Tavshin Lamites. Okay. So, since we're talking about marriage, we're talking about fruits of a marriage, I thought appropriate, though this is a topic I've talked about many, many times, I thought appropriate to address one, just one lesson in Shiduchim and marriage, which of course is an issue that affects us all. What are the most vital things to look for in a potential Shidduch? Before I go there, I just want to give some cross-referencing and let me make some announcements. I always cross-reference, remember this is episode 236, so clearly we've talked about a lot of topics, and many of them overlap with these topics I'm addressing now. So I always refer you to our rich archive, which has all the episodes. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, you can find all the previous archives. And last week I neglected to mention I already got a bunch of emails and saying, why are they not time-stamped? They are time-stamped, which means that you don't have to listen to the entire hour. If you go to the video on our site, as I said, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, and you click on the, vid- on the YouTube version, only YouTube has this feature that it's actually categorized by topic and you can click straight to the timestamp, which means the place, the time, the moment, the, the, the minute and the second when this topic is being addressed. So we made it as easy as possible. Um, so the episode, the, the topics of Yud, the, the Yud, Yud Kislev I discussed in episodes 91 and 140, by Yishlach in 141 and 190, and Yudalit Kislev in episodes 141 and 190. So that complements everything I've said here. In addition, you go there, you'll also find a forum where you can submit your completely anonymous and confidential questions at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You can also access all the essays of the previous four years, the Hasidus Applied My Life Essay Contest, hundreds and hundreds of very interesting and diverse Essays coming from all the spectrum of the entire spectrum of uh, of writers and ages and professions, and all can be found there. I'll also mention it's a good opportunity. Im ein im im ein is the expression, a little off, but that's the teichen. And that that in order to be able to do these programs, we need to have the funding for it. So these programs are free and are funded by community-sponsored. So please consider to be gracious in a, giving us a donation or dedicating a program in memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one. It's a great way to, to achieve several things at once, both to honor someone as well as help this program continue and expand. Okay. So with that, let me go. As I said, I want to address one thing that since it's Yudal Kislev this week, 90 years... So in episode 441, I spoke at length a bunch of items about Shaduchim questions that came in. But one I just want to go over again, and it's more elaborate there, but I thought it's appropriate because it's two answers from the Rebbe that I want to share. What are the most vital things to look for in a potential Shidduch? So the first one, someone writes to the Rebbe that they're dating somebody. When you date someone, and there's many different parts of a human personality, Among the many traits that a person houses, which ones are the critical ones to look out for? How can one know if the qualities that you're looking for are finding perhaps trivial and not essential? Okay. And there I cross-reference other episodes, which I'm not going to do a double cross-reference. 
And here's the Rebbe's answer. Nyone Shidduch, the Rebbe says, especially in this case, the primary thing is that it should be consistent with what it says. Yisha Yiddish Hashem Hittisalo. Ayisha Yiddish Hashem. What, what do you praise above all? Is her Yiddish Hashem. Being a God-fearing person. With all the meanings. And which includes, obviously, Milus Balas Midas Tevis, someone that has Midas Tevis, kind person, has good Midas, kind, gracious, gracious, um, uh, compassionate. I'm, I'm interpreting. But Kol Hashar, the Rebbe says, everything else, he be'erachanal, compared to the above, toffel the toffel. It's secondary, the secondary of secondary. The Rebbe says, when you will focus on, the, on what I just wrote, you'll definitely find, definitely God will definitely help you find a good shidduch quickly. Which will also include other miles besides the ones I mentioned. And then the Rebbe concludes, you should strengthen in your daily, in your daily commitment to the mitzvahs, which includes betochen ba'ashem, trust in God, which will eliminate, eliminate the pacha, the fear, to make a decision regarding a shidduch. Okay. So, there you have it. As the Rebbe says, Sheker HaChem Ayefi, in the early part of the Apostles, the Rebbe doesn't mention it here, the Rebbe explains, it doesn't mean that Chen and Yefi don't have value. They have no value if it's just hollow and has nothing else. But we find clearly in the Teda, Motzah Chen Be'nei Hashem, Chen, Someone has chen. You fast you fast mara, you say ran sora, rifka, rochel. So to say that shekra chen means does that? No, as the Rebbe explains a number of times. It means when you have the yisha yiddish Hashem itasal, kim yiddish yiddish Hashem itasal, the main thing, then of course it elevates that the beauty is then, of course, with a, uh, with a deeper internalized meaning and not just a superficial thing. But you see here clearly what the ikkid is. Another answer that I thought is worthwhile reading, and that is Is Shalom Bayis understood in the same light by all from Jews, or does Chassidus have a unique approach to Shalom Bayis? And the Rebbe has an interesting letter that are talking about the greatness of Shalom Bayis, which is domestic tranquility and harmony, and says, I'm not going to read the whole letter, but he's saying it's so fundamental that every effort in that direction is worth it. He says, it's obvious from your approach that you're taking the approach of the Anshe Musa to be just critical and see the negative things and flaws in, and, and emphasize the negative things in your spouse. The Rebbe says, ain't shaken all over, we don't cry over the past. But from here on, take on the Darke Achsidis, the way of Chassidus. To show and indicate on the qualities the person has. And that if you actualize those qualities, everyone will be helped and grow in this relationship and family.
So I just want to add that because it's Yudal of Kislev, so Chassidosh and Chasna of the Rebbe and the Rebetzin, how that spills over in how we look at a marriage. We could obviously always focus on or focus also on negatives. That doesn't mean we ignore them, but the main thing that Chassidosh teaches is looking at everything with the right eye and the positive. Okay. With that, let us move to some other questions. And, um, and again, I'm uh, a little behind the questions that have been coming in, but I believe I'm catching up. So since there's a crisis going on in Israel, I mean, there's always challenges there. And um, I, so a few questions came in. One is, what, is, what was the Rebbe's view on dealing with the, Arab, the Arabs? Rabbi Jacobson. What was the Rebbe's view on how to deal with the Arabs who keep bothering Israel? Did he agree with the approach of Rabbi Meir Kahana, Olav Shalom, which is to transfer the enemies within Israel to another place? Did the Rebbe ever meet with Rabbi Kahana? Thank you. Okay. So first of all, I've addressed this topic extensively in episode 29, all the way back then, but also in episodes 26, in episodes 30 through 33, 85 and 88. But let me address this. I'll sum up what I said there. I'm not going to go over the whole thing because I discussed it then. As I said, because it's timely, it's always worth refreshing our memories and reconnecting. I mentioned before, I meant in Kemach, that Kemach is, that is, of course, the, the wheat, Kemach is the flour. So I just want to correct myself, but this goes back before, okay. Well, it was good to say it accurately. So the Rebbe's approach is quite actually quite surprising. Many people would think that by the Rebbe, the Arabs are just enemies, and that's all. And you have to kill them all. God forbid. The Rebbe said a number of times, Shalom, peace is not just peace for the Jews, it's peace also for them. And that when you compromise on things that are truthful, which means Israel belongs to the Jewish people. It was given to us from the beginning of time. And the Simen Shin Chavtez that the Rebbe brings a separate issue, which is no matter where it is, when there's danger, you have to protect yourself. When you compromise on vital things like that, then you're not just hurting yourself, you're also hurting those around you. And that if Israel stood strong, it would be, that would create peace, it wasn't just stand strong and just fight wars. That, that itself would create a situation where they wouldn't keep on arguing and ultimately would bring peace. And the shedding of blood of any individual, Jew or non-Jew, is a tragedy. Now that doesn't take away from their hatred and so on. But how do we deal with that? With their hatred we cannot correct. That's their education system and that needs to be done dealt with by whoever has to deal with it. But by being strong, it actually would be good for everybody. By being wishy-washy, or one day you compromise and no one knows where you really stand. So of course, your enemy is going to constantly want more. You give them a le- uh, an arm, they'll take want a leg. And the Rebbe firmly believes that if they stood strong after the Six-Day War, without any compromises, there would have been peace, because people would accept it, and realize, as soon as you see there's somewhat of ambiguity, that's where the problems begin. And in many ways, the Muslim world, the Arab world, knows what it says in the Bible and the Torah. 
They know about Israel as being a land given by God to them. And they're religious in, in many ways. Many times more religious and committed to that, unfortunately, than others. So they don't understand that. But when they see that the people who are given, the people of the book who were given this promised land, don't treat it that way. So what do you think they're going to think? So they feel that we are the chosen by God to take it. So you have to behave with Ge'en Yankiv with a pride and with a confidence and with strength. And peace comes from strength, not from weakness. That's the bottom line. Peace and strength, not a weakness. You don't give land for peace. You give peace for peace. Because land is irreversible. Peace, yes, cultural peace, peace, peace treaties, all fine. But giving land for peace would be like someone saying, give me your living room, then I'll make peace with you. No. I'm not asking you for your living room. Don't ask me for mine. And we'll make peace. Peace for peace. There are many ways to deal with peace. There's trade. There's cultural. There's academic. Many things that can be done. That's the short of it. As far as Rabbi Kahana goes, um, yes, there is perhaps some common denominator, but Rabbi Kahana believed in open demonstrations to defy the government and to aggressively say, let's kick out all the Arabs, let's pay them off. The Rebbe did not believe in those approaches. He believed the government should have a different position. He did not believe to defy, the, did not accept to defy the government, the public, and so on. He challenged the government and spoke about it publicly, but they should change policy, not through demonstrations and not through force. Are there some commonality? Yes, the idea that by all means help the Arabs relocate after the Six-Day War, whether it was from Jerusalem or other places, in a peaceful way, and help them find a place where they can live peacefully and comfortably, instead of feeling that they're always like refugees or second class and so on. So that, of course, the issues are much more complex than just what I'm saying here. But regarding this issue, this is, what, as far as, this is a summation, and I refer you again to the episodes I just, I just um, mentioned. As far as their meeting, I'm not sure. I know Rabbi Kahana lived in Crown Heights. He definitely came to Fabrengans. I don't know if they actually met. I believe yes, but I'll have to do more research. And if anybody has any information on that, please let me know. I know that there was some tensions because Rabbi Kahana did some things like demonstrating across 770 once. He had a very aggressive approach in your face. But, you know, I don't put them in the same league that Eben and Rabbi, Rabbi Kahana. He had his approach, but there was not necessarily the Rebbe's approach. And the Rebbe's with full firmness. As I said, he had definitely positions that many of them would have worked and perhaps could have been embraced. But I would rather, you know, here's this applied, I'm talking about the Rebbe's position. Since you asked the question, I'm, I'm commenting on it. Okay. In other words, I can defend and present the Rebbe's position. I don't know Rabbi Khan's position in detail. I just know some general things. So it's really not my platform, but I'm just referring to it because it was asked. Okay. Completely another topic, which is really an outgrowth of previous programs. And then we'll do some follow-up. And that is, since we're talking about orthodoxy, conservative, I guess somebody wrote the question, one of the local shuls I attend now one of the local Orthodox shuls I attend now hired an assistant female rabbi. Am I allowed to attend the shul or has it lost its Orthodox status? So the truth is, as you know, this program this is not a psak halacha program. And I don't want to render halachic decisions. There are times there's some overlap, so I address it. 
Here there's some overlap between Ashkof and Aloche, but there's a very specific reason I don't do it because it's not, it's not the place. Aloche needs to be asked by the proper Pesach, who is an expert in the area, someone you trust, someone who has the credentials, and someone who can look and listen to all the nuances and come away and give you a Psak Aloche. To do this on video, on a program, where I'm not hearing all the details. And additionally to the fact that I'm not an active Pesach, um, is not appropriate, and it's not my role. And it's not even the scope of this program. It's not the goal of the program. So this really requires asking a, a, a competent Rav, Pesach. Um, oh, I forgot to read the last line of this note, which is maybe the easiest one to address. Thank you, your show is awesome. Thank you very much. Okay, but since it did overlap some of the conversations we had in the previous programs, I, said, I, I myself checked with some Rabbonim, and here's the consensus. It all depends of what, what, what means, what is the role of this um, assistant female rabbi. And I'm not going now into the reasons why a woman can be a rabbi. There's, there's halachas and poskim that talk about it, you can look it up, that's not the question, so I'm not addressing that. So what I got the consensus was, if it's someone who is actively working as, as a rabbinic authority, giving rendering halachic decisions, uh, which means officiating at a wedding, or even speaking on Shabbos as an authority, a rabbi, then it, it challenges perhaps the status of the synagogue because it's not following the halachas of what Taylor says. Whether you should daven there or not, of course your decision, but if you're asking, that's what many of the rabbis told me. If it's so, on the other hand, that's only on paper, like an assistant rabbi to counsel and make some of the com- and make other people comfortable in the community, and someone that serves as a mentor, then the rabbis I spoke to said they don't see an issue, and to, and to make someone to stop davening there, not necessarily. Now, obviously, shuls have different standards. If you're talking about a chabad house or a shul that has higher standards, they can see that also as being something that may not be the right thing to do. But to say you can't daven there. Because you don't have, the woman is not behaving as officiating as an authoritative rabbi. Okay, that's the general gist of it. Okay, as I said, please don't suffice with what I just said, and don't base any, any actions based on what I just said. I gave you an approach, which I did check and confirm with rabbis, but go to a rabbi if you have these questions, to ask specifically the circumstances, exactly what your question is, and that's what you should follow. But there is some ashkofa, some, some, so to speak, methodology, some, uh, how do you translate ashkofa, so approach. That's why I did speak about it. Okay. Let's do now some follow-up. And uh, I reserved some time for it because I always like to do follow-up because there's always details, things I may have missed, or things that people add. So first there was the question, discussion, I'm sad to go back to the Pittsburgh massacre a few weeks ago. We discussed in episodes 233 and 234. <clears throat> so someone asked the question, should Jews arm themselves? What is the Jewish halachic perspective in the Hasidic and Hasidic Chabad regarding the Jews arming themselves for protection? Maybe learning self-defense. We can't just sit by on the side when attacks come or Chaz Shalom wait until something happens to ourselves or loved ones to stand up and do something. We cannot wither either rely on miracles or say, if Hashem wants it to happen, so let it be. What else do you suggest I do? So here too, 
I am not going to render whether you should arm yourself or not arm yourself, not because it's necessarily a halacha question, but because it's case by case. You know, there are, the, the, there's no question self-defense. You have to protect yourself. And nothing more important than protecting lives. Whether every person should go to shul with a gun, I would probably suggest not. Should they have security guards that are armed, not Jewish security guards, by all means, and they're, and they're covert, I mean covert in the way that no one knows who they are, but people see who they are, but you don't have to walk around with a rifle, necessarily, so it doesn't have to throw any fear into anybody, but to have that is absolutely prudent, and it's a legitimate thing to do in the, in the situations that we're in, whether we like it or not. As far as individual goes, look, I don't carry a gun, I don't have one. Um, is it because of my own fears? I don't know. I never really thought of it. So you have to feel, if you feel comfortable that you want to carry a weapon or have a weapon in your home or in some other way, remember there's also dangers involved, a sakana with children, etc. I think this requires a lot more shikladas, uh, which means weighing all the sides and probably getting good um, objective advice. And it's case by case who you are, what, what the situation is, you know, it depends what community you're in, like places where there is, God forbid, more domestic violence, it could be that that should be something that maybe some people should do. But I don't want to really talk black and white because I think it would be unhealthy and irresponsible to just come out and say, Rabbi Jacobson said everybody should go carry a weapon. Or Rabbi Jacobson said no one should carry a weapon. I don't think I'm in a position to say that. I really believe it's far more nuanced than that based on circumstances, based on individuals, and based on who, you know, everybody, not everybody's made out for it. So I think we have to be careful when we're addressing something like this. But overall, to be prudent, listen, we learn from this week's passion. Yaakov prepared for, to meet Esau three ways. With prayers, with a bribe to uh, appease him, and he prepared for war when you're necessary to do so. So for example, in Israel, especially people who are in the army or in the miluim in the reserves, they definitely have a weapon. And they need a weapon, part of their position. There are people who are part of the Jewish community police, like Hatzola. So Hatzola is not for security, but security guards and so on. Obviously, there's a reason for that. But should every individual be armed? That's something I think needs to be weighed back and forth. And I think I just addressed it in the most general sense. And, uh, and obviously, we have to do everything naturally to protect ourselves. And God should protect us all. That like the Rebbe once said about the Hatzola, ambulance outside. Just the mere fact that standing there is Paz Basale means that alone already prevent that you have everything taken care of that you don't actually ever need to use it. So let's hope that's the situation and we should never have to talk about these things and definitely not have to deal with something, God forbid, any, any form of crisis or tragedy. Another person asks, isn't every murder a hate crime? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. As a from Lubavitcher woman living in Crown Heights, I am of course deeply saddened and troubled by the recent massacre in Pittsburgh. We have, had our sh- we have had our fair share of violence in Crown Heights, something that troubles my husband and I and keeps us focused on protecting ourselves and our family. I've been thinking a lot about hate crimes, and I've been thinking that really every murder is a hate crime. Murder can only come through the hatred and disregard for human life. Every day people are murdered in our country, so while of course crimes committed to a certain ethnicity, race, group, feels horrific, I'm fairly certain that the family of any person murdered feels no less saddened or horrified by the life of their loved ones cut short, even if it wasn't a hate crime, quote-unquote. And the tragedy is there even if the murdered person had no family for whatever reason. 
All this got me to thinking about how as Jews we are to be a light unto the nations and how we as the firm community should be doing more to teach the non-Jewish world of the sanctity of life. All humans are created in the image of God. As one person commented on your show, we should be doing more to teach the seven Noahide laws. But value for human life is as it is in the image of God is in a way the fundamental principle of the seven laws. I've also been thinking a lot about our Second Amendment rights and how unfortunate it is that New York prevents us from defending ourselves with a concealed firearm. It seems that in the reality we live in, with such disregard for others, we should be allowed to defend ourselves, just knowing that this five foot seven, 125 pound woman might be packing heat, brings a smile the way you described it, may be enough to deter some near-do-well from trying to attack me. It seems vital to me that all shul should have members who have weapons. If congregants in the eighth Chaim Shul were armed, this man wouldn't have been able to carry out the atrocity to the same level that he did. Of course, I'm not blaming the victims, but why should we be victims? Why should I worry when my husband's going to shul that some thug with an illegal weapon might shoot at him and he'd stand there defenseless? Do you agree with all of this? Am I off course with respect? Your points are very well taken. So first of all, absolutely, every murder is not just a desecration of life. It's a hate crime against the human. It's a hate crime against God because God created that human being. And look at the sanctity that we treat somebody who passes, especially murder. So murder, yes, is absolutely taking a life. You're taking a life that God put on this world. So everyone's a hate crime. So truth is that word hate crime that the American government uses is obviously with more intense laws when it comes you're targeting a Jew because they're a Jew or someone else because of their ethnic or race or religion. So I'm not saying that a regular murder is less of a murder, but that has a particular thing, especially in the shadow of the Nazis, so you can imagine why there is more emphasis. But I don't think it takes away, as you put it very accurately, so I totally agree. I also completely agree that the great, greatest preemptive measure, the words of the Rebbe, teach children about them, that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears, that there's accountability, that human life is sacred. The Sheva Mitzvah which is the foundation that every human being is created in the divine image. The moment of silence. So I totally agree with that. Regarding the Second Amendment rights and, and, and weapons, I already addressed that before. I do agree we have to do whatever is possible to protect ourselves and shuls and so on. But individually, it's a personal choice. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm not going to tell you to do it. I think you have to ask around, think what you're comfortable with. Should people carry around a gun with them? Not everybody's made for that. I can tell you for sure. So I'm not going to go over that. So you're not, of course, I, I agree with basically what you say. And thank you for weighing in now. Okay, here we are. Conservative shul. You avoided answering whether a conservative edifice where they pray is holy like a shul. Is their own Kurdish holy like an Orthodox synagogue? Referring to last week's episode. Yes, I did avoid it, but not in, any, uh, delib- in a very deliberate way, not by accident, because as I said earlier, I'm not here to pass in halachas about shuls. What defines a conservative shul? Is it the mechitza alone? Is it the mixed seating? Is it the woman officiating? There's a lot of details, and it needs to be addressed with a competent rabbi. And I address the concept of Kiddush Hashem, of Eden, has nothing to do with which, which type of environment they got killed in, whether it's in a marketplace or in this place, or in that place, and it shouldn't even be a factor when we talk about this matter. Um, I also mentioned the Rambam that talks about what makes something 
That's, what, what, what is accepting Tehidim in Hashemayim and all that comes with that? So I think I said enough. As far as a final status about a certain, certain type of shul, I defer you to the rabbis to ask them that question. Okay. Um, now regarding another follow-up. Shidduch. How much to reveal about a family, family member? This was back also two weeks ago. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. First of all, I would like to express my thanks for what an amazing job you do in relation to this podcast and forum, which I should add, every, all the programs besides being broadcast live and archived are also available for free download for podcasts on the go in your car, exercising, whatever it is that you're doing. So, continuing. Having been introduced to this podcast roughly three months ago, I can safely say I have not missed a week of listening. I think the divertated questions and, of course, your responses are insightful, empathetic, and inspiring. In relation to episode 234, questions related to Ashidich, you mentioned that detailed potential personal issues should really be addressed on a case-by-case situation. In general, should an issue have a direct impact to the Shidduch, it should definitely be discussed and addressed prior to an emotional connection occurring. I'm wondering if this extends to one's family, family members. For example, if there is or was, God forbid, an issue with alcoholism or gambling within the household, for example, a mother or father, should this be made known to a potential Shidduch in the same way? I recall that you mentioned that issues that do not directly impact the couple need not necessarily be made known. However, although the couple are not marrying each other's family, but rather each other, they do not live in isolation, and there certainly will be times, be it regularly or occasionally, that the couple will be with the family or family members in question. How should we go about mentioning this in a Shidduch case? Or is this not relevant to the couple and it need not be mentioned? Once again, thank you for all your good work. Much Hatzloch. Okay, very good question. Let me address that. And then the other follow-up I will do in the following weeks. The same rule applies. If a parent, for whatever reason, has an issue, but the child that is in question, the Shidduch, if the no, is that issue at all bear on the child and bear on the Shidduch? It may completely have no connection. For example, there are situations where people, their parents may have gone, parent or parents have gone through something difficult, Holocaust survived, may have strong impact on the, on the, on the respective shidduch match. Sometimes it does not. So it's something that one has to research. And to say that every issue that parents have, then why not grandparents and great-grandparents, how far do you go? Remember, Avram's father was Terach. He was an idol worshiper. He was an idol manufacturer. So I'm just pointing out, we have to know that parents are not necessarily reflective on their children. And here, it's a step away. With a person themselves, obviously that's the person you're going to potentially marry. So clearly we take more discretion there. With a parent, if someone came to me, I would ask stronger questions. Not just whether there's an issue, what, maybe it's an issue that happened when they were a teenager. Does it impact? I'd look at the other siblings in the family, meaning the siblings of the potential shidduch. Do they have healthy marriages? Are they healthy people? It's very important to put things in context because if not, you could end up putting everything under a microscope and destroying every shidduch because who does not have some skeleton? So I'd say yes, it could be relevant. It could not be relevant. Because remember, parents' behavior affects their children. But many, many things that parents do do not necessarily affect or at least don't affect in a way that's significant. So this too may be an issue that should be brought up. The question is when. 
Should it be brought up before the discussion of the Shidduch? Maybe not. Maybe in middle. When someone's doing the research, if they can find out as much as possible about the parents, by all means, if you can find out. But we're going to talk more about the responsibility of once you do research, which I didn't discuss. So I would just say, you, if, you're a, if you're going on a date, do you have to tell somebody? Let's say you have no issues at all, or no, nothing significant. Do you have to tell your prospective shidduch, the person you're dating, the man or woman you're dating, about your parents' issues? Case by case. And here I would take even more, be more cautious on the saying, not necessarily even more so than if it's yourself, obviously. But this comes down to, if, if you feel it impacts your life, then it's something you should share at some point. It doesn't have to be in the first date. Because the person is marrying you, and they should know that they're marrying a person that's impacted. You know, you may have an over-attachment or an influence of parents. So sometimes your parents are, you feel, intervene in your life more than you want to, and you're taking care of yourself, but you want to, you want to know your husband should know, your wife should know, that, that I have an issue with that, but don't worry about it. We'll, I'll protect you from them, or our, we'll both protect ourselves from them, when, if necessary. So these are all questions, and that's why it's very hard to give one black and white answer. Okay, let's stop with the follow-up, because there's a few more, more on Shidduch, and one more on something we discussed last week. And I will go now to the Chassidus question, which, of course, being a special 90th anniversary Yudal Kislev program, is on the context, uh, the content of a marriage. And here's the question. What? What does Chassidus add to the understanding of marriage? Very good question. So let me give you a little background and just add a few key points. Obviously, I'm not going to go through a whole elaborate everything Chassidus says. But something interesting, I always noticed that for the first time I started looking into Chassidus, is that we have, of course, my modem and all the parshas. Breshis. Sefer Breshis. Shemoyiz Vayikra Bamid Vodvarim. We have Ashir Ashirim. Talking about Tere and Lukuta Tere. We have, if you go further with Eda Tere, we have also and Al Rebbe, Amitla, Anach, Nevim, Ksuvim, a lot on Tehillim. We have on this spot. Then we have the Drushim connected to Yom Tevim, whether Drushay Pesach or Drushay Shvuas or Drushay Sukkis or Drushay Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkis, Purim, Chanukah. Then there's a whole category called Drushay Chasana. The discourses connected to Chasana. And the interesting we were said on Chasana, starting from the Alter Rebbe, he would say long discourses at Chasana, and we have these drushim. And they're collected in this form that are printed today. Mitla Rebbe, even more so. Even more Maimonim, longer Maimonim. And all the Rabbeim had Maimonim at the Chasana, not only their immediate family, their children, which were short, they said Maimonim, but also Maimonim, they said at relatives, I think there are even my modem, I didn't have looked into in detail, even of Chassidim or others that they were there at that wedding. So there's a whole corpus, a whole body of material literature just on Chassidim. Now, if you go down the line, you have my modem from the Rebbe Marash by Chassidim, the Rebbe Rashab, of course, the Rebbe Rashab is my modem by the Friedrich Rebbe's Chassidim. Samach to Samach, Nun Zayin, early, earlier, Huka Chassidim. There's also Nun Zayin, all by the and and and. Um, um, my modem is said by his sister's wedding, by his daughter's wedding. And of course, connected to Yudal Kisla, the Friedrich Rebbe said a whole series of Drushe Chasna. It came out, Drushe Chasna, at the Rebbe Tzachai Mushka and the Rebbe's wedding, which we, we have and we learn. 
So we have a whole, as I said, a whole body of uh, material on the Chassidish addition to Chasna. A few brief Nekudis from different Mamorim. I'm just going to select a few. Samach to Samach Zion, of course, is a really powerful one in this regard. But they, all of them have tremendous Chidushim. One of the things, the concept of the reunion, that a marriage is not a union but a reunion, straight from the Alter Rebbe's Mamorim, soulmate. Based on the fact that Zohar and Akeva Boreis are male and female, and they're both soulmates. So when they meet, they already had met. 40 days before children are born, it's already announced. Their souls had a connection before they get. Then they both are planted into two different families, and they complete strangers. Then they meet again. It's a reconnection. So that Chassidus explains the reunion. It's a beautiful concept because it means these souls are destined for each other. And now they're reconnecting, and that's why there's such a great simcha, because you're getting the yichud of something that was so separate, that was meant to be united. Remember, all male and female were once one. In a sense, Adam and Chava were one entity, then separated. So you can imagine the Gedla Simcha, the Alter Rebbe says, when you bring together two parts of one whole. So it's even a greater simcha. Another concept, of course, Chassidus addresses is Zohar Malchus, that the Chas and the Kala are not just a union of two people, but it's a union that goes through all the levels of Seder Ishtashlis. You can say when the two couple come together at a wedding, it, the ripple effect of unity ripples through all the cosmos to the highest levels. Which is why by the brachas, the Sheva brachas, we don't even talk about the individuals. We don't even make mention of their name. We talk about what happened by, by Ganeid Mikadem and Mashiach comes. Because a chasen is not just two individuals. All of existence experiences a unity. And then, of course, the connection to the chasen between the ultimate chasen and kala, God, and the Jewish people. So when you look at this, what it does is it adds dimensions, not just to the uh, beautiful element of two people coming together, and it's a beautiful marriage, and I use it all the tale of a mitzvah, but as the Rebbe said, illuminated by the luminary of Teir, which adds the inner dimension to a marriage. And I just mentioned a few points, and of course there are many, many more, that talk about what Simch is, the concept of Simcha Peretz Geder, is one of the Chidushim, Samach to Samach, Nun Zayin, which Simcha breaks through all Gedorim, through all uh, barriers, and all the other things that Chassidus talks about. There's much more to be said, but suffice for now, and as I said, the Maimari Drusha Chasna are all available for all to read and derive more, more messages and lessons. Plenty of material if you have to ever speak at a wedding or a Sheva Brachas or an engagement. There's a lot of material out there. So now let's do the essays. Essay contest. Three essays, as we always do. And we're winding down this year's contest. Soon will be the new contest. So the first, first one is the power of speech and emotion. Helena Peiser, or Peiser, age 20, Memphis, Tennessee, a student at Goldie Margolin School for Girls. The power of speech and emotion. Words of speech, what is it? Hashem has given us the ability to speak, see and hear every bit of feeling that we feel through our emotions and actions. tells the famous story of the Baal Shem Tov holding everybody to hold their hands together. And one of them began screaming in terror, but the Chassidim had seen actually this person mutilate his adversary. 
writes the following, we can learn from this incident that every thought or spoken word can have a major effect either in a physical form or spiritual form which can be interpreted only in a higher and more spiritual level. And goes on to explain how to cope stra- coping strategies for negative emotions using speech and emotions. The conflict that exists with very good case studies like that always. And avoid shaming the public which means saying something that would shame somebody. Healing and gaining trust back through words. Learning to trust in yourself. And a beautiful concluding poem, Purifying the Kind Soul. Very, very well done. Thank you. I was very touched by this particular essay. And this essay and all essays can be seen as they're posted now every week at my life at meaningfullife.com slash my life. The essay is 2018, as well as previous essays. The next essay that I shall read is Review Precious Gems by Chayemushka Litzman, age 16, Spring Valley, New York, student Muncie-based Chayemushka. A Chabad Chassid strives to become a better person. This is a constant struggle that is encountered in day-to-day life. With the help of the Rabbeim, we are able to conquer our daily struggles. One example of a struggle is judging favorably. It is hard when you only see something from the outside, you can't see inside, and then jump to conclusions of why the person may not be acting as you see it. And goes on of not judging people, making sure that you don't know what's happening, using a letter from the Rebbe connected to Lagba Emir, what the Talmidi Rabbi Kiva did, and how we should learn from them not to, to show respect to each other. And in general, the Vahavtarecha Kamecha, the Maimur Nachaltsu, another very succinct and good essay about the power of loving and kindness and not judging people. A tremendous lesson, even if we've heard it many times. It's always good to read again, especially in the, the, in the voice of a 16-year-old. And finally, the third essay, Beyond the Thought to Instinct, F. Ched Vishagalov, age 19, Brooklyn, New York, student, Benoist Chomish Academy. In today's day and age, we are taught that everything is about understanding. Therefore, if we don't understand something to be right, we shouldn't do it. We are taught that our mind needs to control our heart. Yet if such is the case, why do we at times, why, we do, why do we do at the times when we don't have the luxury of thought? What do we do at the times when we don't have the luxury of thought and the time to really think something through? In other words, something has to be done quickly. Goes on to discuss this concept of thought versus uh, deliberate thinking something through versus instinct and developing healthy instincts, that, um, when, especially when they're needed. And that Mayuk Shaltalev is not just an act that you do, but you can actually train yourself and condition yourself to come to a point of having healthy instincts. Okay, nice essay as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the essays. Always great to see. So let us now sum up and conclude. As we enter this week, starting with Yud Kislev and coming from Tes Kislev and coming from Rish Chaydesh Kislev, then Yudalit Kislev 90, the 90th anniversary, then we'll be going to Yud Tes Kislev, a month filled with Chesidish holidays, called Chesidish Geula, and concluding with Hanukkah, of course, which is another Geula, and connected also to Primis Atele, Shemen, oil in Tele. So what richer month do we have in Chesidish applied in emphasizing for us our, our mission is to take the rich resources that was saturated and t- taught us from all that are being, and to create fruits. First of all, us walking fruits. Chesidish fruit of the Rebbe and the Rebbe. 
Chassidish of fruit from all the Rabbein, and teaching others, in the broadest possible way. Takeaway message from this week's episode of My Life Chassidish Applied, episode 236. We're here every Sunday from 8 to 9 p.m. As I said, you can find all our archives and all these programs at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. I encourage you again to sponsor and dedicate and help us continue and expand the program. Everyone have a very good Yom Tov Dika week, a Simcha Dika week, a Mazel Tov week, beginning with the Yudalad Kislev, beginning with Yud Kislev, but concluding with Yudalad Kislev, the 90th anniversary, and not forget the dance, Meragdin, as the Rebbe said, with all the inter- meanings with dan- in that dancing includes. A good Yom Tov and a good Vok. Feel a